This is I Speak the System with Jimmy Cliche. Um, just a reminder that if you want to support this uh, podcast, um, the best way to do so is to um, review it uh, as a book and also um, you, to buy the, um, the, uh, a copy of, of the book as an ebook for $3. Uh, just $3 will um, go a long way in terms of getting me um, sales and numbers. Um, it's not about the money, um, but about making a sale and, and like saying that, like, that, that a book was sold and you're hearing it through this for free and it doesn't count as a book sale for me unless someone actually buys the book. So there, it's available for $3 on Amazon as an ebook. And if you have $3 that you can donate, I'd love it if you did that, but you're welcome to just listen for free, of course, too. Um, that's why I did this to make it accessible. So, um, anyway, but if you have $3 and want to put it on, I write the system by Jimmy cliche, J Y M I cliche, C L I C H E. Then, um, you know, I would appreciate that. Anyway, this is chapter 26. Take it. I went with my youth group up to Vermont for a ski trip during winter vacation. It was one of many annual retreats I attended each year. The only retreat I didn't make it to was the one that was supposed to be my confirmation retreat. I was at Claymore at the time. I was sad to miss it. Those were some of my best times. I enjoyed the spiritual exploration. We had prayer time at the end of each meeting where we lit candles and put on music like Indigo Girls, Jars of Clay, Hootie and the Blowfish, Amy Grant, Sting, Peter Gabriel, Enya, Lenny Kravitz, the Cranberries, and others like them, and we could pray with a friend, which I usually did. That was how I got to know Agnes, but we could also sit and meditate or write a prayer on a piece of paper to put anonymously into a prayer bottle that Sarah would give to her grandmother who'd pray for us. I did that on occasion as well, probably freaked the old lady out with the things I wrote. When we did our annual ski trip that year, I was one of the older kids. One girl just started youth group and she was supposed to be my roommate. I liked her okay and was actually a big part of the reason she joined the youth group after I consult, after I counseled her after an issue she was having, over an issue she was having. She said she felt alone and scared and she talked to me about it, so she was fond of me. While I was happy to help, I couldn't shake the fact that she was the younger sister of one of the boys who raped me the day after Hurricane Bob and it was in her bed. I tried as hard as I could not to let it get to me, but we were supposed to room together at that ski retreat, and I had to ask Sarah not to put me in a room with her. I told Sarah why, but I felt like I was being obnoxious to make a big deal out of it. I hated doing that and felt weird about it, but the girl never knew about it. I didn't want her to know her brother did that to me in her bed, but I was triggered by the idea of sharing a bedroom with her, and I needed to tell someone. I ended up falling on my ass while skiing down the mountain the first day because I'd gained weight and I couldn't balance. I had to be carried down the mountain on a sled, which was actually kind of fun, but the whole experience shook me after everything else I'd been through, and I never skied again. When school started back up, I'd grown close with my improv classmates, 
Stevie, Tabitha, Maya, and an annoying but awesome boy named Pesh. He was kind of a metalhead with long blonde hair and rock t-shirts, but he also loved the Bee Gees and could sing high pitch like them. He'd been in a gang in his old town and was hurt in a gang fight, but he lived. He had severe PTSD from it. He lived with his mom and sister, who were working class, but his uncle was a powerful politician, and Pesh once dreamed of becoming a fighter pilot, but couldn't anymore due to his time in the psychiatric hospital. That depressed him, but he was usually full of life, trying to get a laugh out of people. I forget what started it. I think he was cutting wood at school on a camping trip and was yelling, take it, take it, at the trees he was cutting. That turned into a thing for him, almost like a tick with Tourette's. He'd yell, take it, all the time at random moments, to the point where he was literally banned from saying take it at CCS, since they didn't have... Since they didn't act, since he didn't actually have Tourette's and was mostly doing it on purpose, he started saying it take, and then they eventually have banned him from that too. They said he couldn't say those words at all. So when they called on him to read aloud in class, he'd skip every take or it in the paragraph and leave them out completely. It was annoying but also entertaining. He had a big old truck named Betty that he'd drive over to my house from his city. We ended up dating for a couple weeks, but I broke up with him. I said I just wanted to be friends and that I thought I was only into women. That was true, or at least that was how I felt, like I was done with men as romantic partners. Pesh was struggling and got hospitalized at Claymore and sent to a PTSD ward and war, for war victims called North Bell. I made him a Take It mixtape with songs that had Take It in them, like We're Not Gonna Take It by Twisted Sister and Take It to the Limit by The Eagles, and a song called Crazy Mary by Pearl Jam, which was a cover of a song by Victoria Williams. It had a line, Take a Bottle, Take It Down. And there were a couple other songs on there too, including a sampling from something called The Stink Tape, which my friend Miles from middle school had recently given me when we got together at his house. The stink tape was a cassette tape recording that had been passed around my town. It was made by a set of twins from our grade. I think I dated one of them in middle school, but I hardly knew them. The funny thing about the tape was that it was basically a very long, improvised punk rap song that the twins and their friend made when they were seven years old about a kid they hated, and it was pretty fucking explicit. I still have a copy of it. I used to think it was hysterical, but the last time I listened to it a few years ago, it made me sad. I thought Pesh would find it funny, though. There was a line in the stink tape with the words, Take it, wrapped in a satanic-sounding child's voice, saying something like, Wham, bam, don't give a shit. Shit in the can, that's how you have to take it. Pesh appreciated the gift, but when we visited him... It was like he had no spirit, and everyone in the ward looked that way, like they were lost. It was a different atmosphere than the adolescent ward I'd been to a year earlier. But Pesh was 19, and so he had to go to an adult ward. Tabitha and I visited him with a couple of his friends, Derek and Soren. Derek was a quiet kid in a hooded jacket. He kept his hood up all the time and chain-smoked cigarettes. Whenever he was stressed, he'd say... This is why I smoke. Soren kind of looked like Chris Cornell with his 
long, dark hair and beard. He was a vegetarian, and he annoyed the hell out of me at first, like Pesh did, because it seemed like he was in competition with Pesh, showing off how much more annoying he could be. But he grew on me, too. He had an iguana and lived in a condo complex in a nice town out near Concord. He had a little brother, Alex, who was a computer hacker that wore long leather trench coat year-round and was hired by Harvard to do computer security when he was only 15, hanging out in the pit in Harvard Square. When we hung out at Soren's, we'd often hang out with Alex and his little Russian greaser punk friend, Mo. We became a crew outside school. Pesh would usually pick everyone up and bring them to my place since I had one of the best houses for hanging out, although I loved going to Soren's too, even if it was a long trip. It was a good 45 minutes from my house, but his mother was a kind woman and an amazing cook. The whole family had good taste in music, and Alex was always showing me new things I could do with the internet, which was pretty much brand new to me that year. We had Prodigy, then WoW, then AOL, and it was back in the old days of dial-up when my whole family shared one computer in the basement. If someone was on the internet upstairs, if someone was on the internet and someone upstairs picked up the phone, it would knock us off. Then we'd have to wait until the person upstairs was off the phone to dial back up again, which took forever and a lot of patience. There was a lot of yelling. Everything was still slow, but I loved the internet. At first, I was mostly into message boards and chat rooms. I met a kid in middle America somewhere who was my first internet friend, and he sent me a zine he made, which was basically a photocopied DIY self-published magazine. I knew in instantly that I wanted a zine too, and I started one based on CCS. It was more of a newsletter because I hadn't figured out how to make a proper folded and stapled zine yet, but I continued to make them for years, eventually changing the theme and format to become more po- more professional. We were done with our math trips measuring playgrounds, and we were almost finished building, painting, and decorating our scale model, which became more and more impressive as the weeks went on. We were reading banned books in English class to keep us interested. They gave us all a list with hundreds of books that had been banned over the years, and we could pick any of them to read for a book report. In class, we all read To Kill a Mockingbird together, which was also banned in many places over the years. It was my third time reading it in high school since I read it in freshman English both years in public school, but I loved it and was glad I was already familiar. It's still one of my favorites. We went to see the play in Boston. The whole school took a bus into the theater district. We also went to the Esplanade by the Charles River, the Arnold, the Arnold Arboretum, and we walked over to JFK's birthplace in Coolidge Corner to take pictures. I took some great photos in photography class. I wasn't new to photography as an art since I grew up with Polaroids and instant cameras, but I was new to developing the pictures and the manual cameras. We were all lent Canon AE-1 cameras to use, and as much film, paper, and darkroom supplies as we needed. It was exciting to watch the images appear on the paper when we put them in that first plastic box of chemicals like magic. Some of my best photos were of my cousin Kenny out on Martha's Vineyard. I took pictures of my cousins a lot, and they were a huge source of happiness for me. I went to the islands with Kenny and my aunts for a few days. We witnessed a gunfight. 
I don't usually think of Martha's Vineyard as being the kind of place with gunfights, but a couple of our neighbors were shooting at each other. We were ducking behind the windows trying to watch without being seen. It didn't last long, but it was exciting for a minute. I ran into some famous actors and directors on the ferry on the way home. They were filming a remake of a classic movie called Sabrina. I told them I did some acting and wanted to be a director, plus other stuff about my life story, and they seemed to think I was entertaining to talk to. My father's oldest, my father's second oldest brother was sick with cancer and in and out of the hospital. I visited him once and gave him some of my prayer yarn from youth group, left over from when I prayed for him. We'd taken a ball of yarn, each saying a prayer, then throwing the ball to someone else, and we held onto a string. The yarn got passed to everyone in the circle, sometimes several times while we prayed. A nest of string connected us all in our prayers, and we cut it and wore it and tied around our ankles or wrists. I had mine around my ankles for years. My uncle was staying with Dove, a close friend of the family, while he was sick, and they smoked weed together. Dove was best friends with my Grammy, who died when I was four, and she took she sort of took over Grammy's role. She's been like a grandmother to me ever, ever since. She's now in her 90s and still uses hemp to medicate, as she calls it. I think it's kind of funny since I never knew that growing up, but she took my uncle in while he was sick with cancer, and they had a big party for him when it was starting to look like the end. I invented... I. I invited my friend Axel from school, who was goth and maybe kind of scary looking, but a very gentle person, and my family liked him. I liked him a lot too, and I broke my rule of not dating men anymore to date him for about a week, but we ended up just being good friends. Mona was dating the bisexual nephew of a famous Jewish comedy actress, and she decided she was converting to Judaism. No one in my family cared and figured it was just a fad, but when my uncle died, my family planned to have his funeral in the Catholic church that our family belonged to, and Mona made a big fuss over how unfair and fucked up it was for us to have a Catholic funeral for her uncle when she was Jewish. She didn't attend the funeral. She often did shit like that. I was kind of sad about my uncle, but I didn't know him that well. I knew he was a car salesman and a bullshit artist, and I did know that he smoked weed and had some problems with the law. He was always the one bringing illegal fireworks to parties and lived in a shithole apartment before he moved in with Dove. He hadn't been around much of my childhood until middle school when he dated a woman with kids around my age whose father had just died. My uncle became their whole world and helped them through that, and then he died too. I always felt sad for those kids who were like my short-term cousins. I hardly ever talked to them again after his funeral. I had three different therapists at school my junior year, plus my outside psychiatrist, Dr. Robleski, who I started seeing when I got out of Claymore. Our sessions were at her house. She had a home office there where she was a a child psychiatrist. She had me on pills each time I saw she had me on new pills each time I saw her. She was a hippie with long skirts and hairy legs and was always having me contract for safety when I was feeling suicidal, which was still quite often. Going to Claymore or even CCS didn't solve that issue for me. I'd often sleep on the couch in the living room, sometimes for weeks at a time because I wasn't trusted to be alone in my room. 
I was always going between my bedroom and the living room. My mom hated the mess I'd make with notebooks, music, art supplies, blankets, pillows, and Diet Coke cans. But it sort of became a regular part of my life. I never considered how it was affecting my younger sisters to see me sleeping on the in the living room so that I wouldn't off myself.